I had this feeling like this moment is really important. I could never have imagined what my life is now, by the way. And so I sat down and asked myself, and this is the unlock moment. You would not know me if it weren't for this exact moment and what I did with it. So I sat down, began to meditate, and I don't have a long attention span, so it's always pretty quick. And I said, okay, if there's a life lesson for me right now, I need to know what it is. And the words that came to me were, don't hold back. And I thought, okay, fine, I won't hold back. I did not realize how important those words would be. She then began coaching me, or as I think, hazing me. And then two or three years later, gave me $2 million to start the Institute of Coaching. And then everything from that, and it all goes back to that one moment of don't hold back. That became the substitute for confidence. I didn't need confidence because when I had an idea, I had to do it. I like to coach people who are skeptical of coaching, don't particularly give a darn, and are often uh, people who are scary to their people. I'd say maybe 40% of my cases are like that, and, and 50 or 60 are kind of not your terrifying people. So I like both. But I think when I'm, when I'm working with someone, particularly for those of us here who are working with people who are on the scary side, is how do you get yourself to know them well enough, quickly enough, that you can like them? And if you like them, if you can find what is good and special about that person and form a bond, then you create psychological safety by that. And they tend to open up and will allow you in. So he procrastinated for six months. I mean, I can understand that. And then finally, here's our first coaching session. Hello, okay, hello. And then he puts up his hand to look at his watch and goes, how long is this gonna take? Only he said it like, how long is this gonna take? Oddly enough, it was not hard to find a way to like him. And I, instead of taking it personally, thought, you know, if I was him, I wouldn't wanna have to talk to some woman that my board tells me I have to speak to when I brought in the numbers, I know more than anybody else, I'm a great business person. Why should I have to talk to this person? So I said something like, it's up to you, actually. So um, what's going on? He then like machine gunned out for 15 minutes everything that was going on because nobody ever asked him. And then finally he described his situation. <laughs> I said, well, how did that turn out? And he goes, well, my most valued person quit. To which I said, would you like that to not happen again? My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. 
The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. If you've been listening for a while, then you'll have enjoyed my Master Locksmith conversations with some of the world's leading coaches on the secrets of leadership success and personal fulfillment and how to discover your own Unlock Moment. It's been my great privilege to be able to speak to many of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 coaches on the Unlock Moment and also Marshall himself. And I'm delighted to say that we have another of that prestigious group with us today. Today's guest is something of a legend in the world of coaching. Dr. Carol Kaufman was ranked as the number one leadership coach in the world by Marshall Goldsmith. She's an international thought leader and practitioner in the field of coaching with, get this, over 40,000 hours of practice working with people from all walks of life, from aspiring leaders to CEOs, elite athletes and royalty. She launched the Institute for Coaching at Harvard Medical School and is also on the faculty at Henley Business School here in the UK, which is where I trained as a coach. Carol has been described as the lateral thinker who pushes the edges with a sense of humour and can disrupt someone out of their comfort zone. I think we'll get on. She describes her purpose as a coach to be a conduit of joy and the sword of truth, to care for and confront the powerful, to galvanise their goodness, to become forces of good. Her new book with co-author David Noble is called Real-Time Leadership. Find your winning moves when the stakes are high, and it's just out. Whether you're making a split-second decision when your business is hit sideways, or finding the best strategy to navigate business-critical long-term circumstances, how can you be at your best in the most crucial moments? I can't wait to get into the conversation. Carol Kaufman, it is my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm delighted that you accepted the invitation. So we're going to come on and talk about your new book in a second, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your personal journey and how you found yourself in this space. Where did this love of coaching start for you? I think there's many beginnings. On one hand, my entire life has been about developing others. Started out with working with abused horses who were violent, then it moved on to people. I was a clinical psychologist. I specialized in trauma, then peak performance, and then a moment came. I needed CEUs, continuing education credits, for my clinical psychology license. And I went to a coaching workshop. And the person at the workshop who knew he was kind of boring, very, very funny, said at the end of the day, um, someone here can um, win coach tuition but you have to be here to win it. Long story short, I, I, um, they took the email addresses and then the next day you were to be announced who, who had won. And what happened was odd. It was a Monday. I was in my office sitting by my little roll top desk and I got the email that I had won. What was compelling about that wasn't that moment. 
It was earlier that day where I suddenly had this very strong feeling that like, Carol, you have won the coaching, to which my immediate thought was, great, now I'm going to be really unhappy when I don't win it. But then when I did, I had this feeling like this moment is really important. I could never have imagined what my life is now, by the way. And so I sat down and asked myself, and this is the unlock moment. You would not know me if it weren't for this exact moment and what I did with it. So I sat down, began to meditate, and I don't have a long attention span, so it's always pretty quick. And I said, okay, if there's a life lesson for me right now, I need to know what it is. And the words that came to me were, don't hold back. And I thought, okay, fine, I won't hold back. I did not realize how important those words would be. Okay, Monday, Tuesday goes by, now it's Wednesday. And I'm reading an article by the former president of the American Psychological Association, famous author, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm reading the article. I'm thinking, wow, I'd really like to talk to him. And then like any normal person, what's your next thought? They're not going to want to hear from me. And then I heard in my mind, don't hold back. If you have an idea, you have to do it unless there's a very good reason not to. Well, I did wimp out. I did not call, but I did email. And to my surprise, this person who is Marty Seligman, known as the father of positive psychology, answers his emails. So we started an email correspondence. We then started working together. We traveled the world together. I wound up hosting five of his birthday parties. And, you know, he was a really important force in my life for a long time. The next one was I went to a meeting and my um, a, a coach I knew who is a well-known speaker had spoken at the International Coach Federation. I thought, I'd like to talk at the International Coach Federation. He then looks at me like he just smelled bad cheese and said, Carol, that's a long shot. So um, nothing would now get in my way since I've been told I cannot do it and it is a long shot. I did everything in my power, many long stories in there that I'll skip. There I am. The talk was ironically called Pivot Points, Small Choices That Change Your Life. Afterwards, I met two people. One of them is the person who, after a while of knowing me and working together, said, Carol, the world needs an academic home for coaching, and you need to create it. That was Margaret Moore. The other one was this woman who came up to me, and it's a whole story in itself, magnificent moment. Who She then began coaching me, or as I think, hazing me. And then two or three years later, gave me $2 million to start the Institute of Coaching. And then everything from that, and it all goes back to that one moment of don't hold back. Because that became the substitute for confidence. I didn't need confidence because when I had an idea, I had to do it. It's such an amazing story. You tell it so well. And what resonates for me in the interviews with many, many, many different walks of life that I've talked to on the Unlock Moment so often that moment is such a simple idea, don't hold back. But in that moment, it's a new thought. And I love the word you use, pivot point. I often think about after that point, it is forever clear where it felt nebulous before. So I love how you describe that. So the book that you've recently written with David Noble is called Real-Time Leadership, Find Your Winning Moves When the Stakes Are High. Tell me more about the moment when you knew this was the new book that you wanted to write. 
Where did it come from? Oh, that's a story very few people know. What happened was I was, David and I have been working together since about 2016, but I was working on my own book, which is about good and evil in the workplace. That's going to be my next book, by the way. And David and I were working together and he kept sending me ideas about this whole real-time leadership thing. And it was based on lots of conversations, but I was involved in my own work. And finally, he goes, Carol, either get on board and write this book with me or just tell me you're not going to do it. And I stopped and I thought, okay, it's him or me. And I thought, okay, it's him. I will give up my own book. And I've been working on this like 10 to 15 hours a week for like a year plus. And in that, that turned out to be a major moment because literally within three weeks, we had a book contract with Harvard Business Review. And we got the, review, we got the contract out of a misunderstanding, which is I didn't know at that point that David could write. He was a great writer, it turns out. But I was really interested in looking for a ghostwriter because I didn't want to have to write the whole darn book. And so I was getting advice from this guy about a ghostwriter. David and I are on the phone with each other. And then to my horror, I realized he's a senior editor at HBR and we do not have the appropriate things. I go, listen, I know it's early. We don't have a table of contents. We don't have a market analysis. We don't have this. We don't have that because I'm trying to like save face. And he goes, I said, so I know it's too early for us to be talking to you about an actual book. And he goes, yeah, I don't, I don't like that. I like to, I like to work with my authors like at this point. And I'm like, uh, as in now? And he's like, yes. Yeah, so David, and what happens with David and I work together, typically if something happens and one of us is speechless, the other is not. David then goes, well, what are you looking for in a book? And he's like, I want clarity of thought, something new, good social media backup, you know, da, 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 da. And he goes, yeah, check, 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 check. Got all of them. I'm going to go to the murder board on Tuesday. And I should not call it a murder board. They usually take what I suggest. And so within three weeks, the book was the book was sold. And that really said to me, okay, that was the right thing to do. I was talking last week to Dr. Robert Lefkowitz, the 2012 Nobel Prize winner for chemistry, who was talking about in the science world, luck versus instinct versus following the data. And it's really interesting how some of the things you're talking about are kind of coming together of minds arriving in the right moment, somebody helping you to open a door and something comes out of that. So you talk about in the book, when the stakes are high. Tell me more about what you mean by when the stakes are high. One of the CEOs that I work with, I hadn't seen him in a while, and he was actually at a Marshall Goldsmith event, and he looked like pale and, and sickly. And I went up to him and I said, like, wow, what's going on? He goes, Carol, you know what leadership is like? It is like a tornado of fire and shots. And that is real-time leadership. How do you find a space for yourself to be able to act with choice and thoughtfulness when the stakes are so high that you're just operating on reflexes? The real-time can be in this moment. And there's also a whole other category of real time that can be something that is a year long, a quarter long, or a, a lifelong goal. So it's both things, but how can you operate in real time 
I think a lot of people need the split second kind of interventions, or as I think of it, how to change in no extra time. My own experience of retail leadership, a CEO that I worked for had this amazing phrase of being in the middle of what we called in the UK, the retail apocalypse, when all the stores were closing and footfall was dropping away. And he said, it's like a knife fight in a telephone box. And that idea that you just don't have time to, or space to reflect and you don't have the data to do analysis. And there's just uncertainty coming from every direction. And you have to make decisions on, come back to luck, instinct and data. There's not much data. So how do leaders do that in today's world? Okay, let me pause for a moment because you gave me, um, you reminded me of something that's the other side of real-time leadership. I was working with a chair, major founder of a very famous retail outlet, family, business, et cetera, et cetera. And he used real-time in a different way, shockingly different which is now his company in the retail consumer world is the most, um, they measure by foot, and it is the most profitable company of its kind in the world in terms of this how much square foot. And what he does in real time is he, one of the, one of the we'll talk about the model later, but one of the aspects of it is find, is to validate your vantage point and really look around you and do you need a broad or a narrow? So if you're going to change in real time, there's many different aspects of it, but that was one. And what he used to do is he would basically, you know, imagine you're sailing a ship across the sea. Every now and then he would go to the back of the ship and look behind him at the whole horizon. That's another real time. And if he so much as saw a little boat popping over the horizon way far behind, behind him, he would reinvent the business. So at one time, he just literally reinvented it from sort of a lovely, fancy retail to basically a data business and all of the data they had collected through all of the things they had ever sold and then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But that's another example. Some of these retail leaders are just remarkable. In the retail world, you see businesses that, are, that have pivoted massively over the course of maybe three years, five years. And then there's others that have really, really struggled to change. And almost at this moment, they haven't changed already. It's too late. And those, those are the ones that are really struggling with legacy stores and tired high streets or tired cities. And they haven't got a hold of their data and they haven't picked up on digital. And now you've got AI coming around the corner. Other people compete so quickly and take parts of your business. It's really challenging leaders to have to do something different from anything they've done in the last 20, 30, 40 years of their career. And I think that's really quite an existential challenge to leaders because in many, many industries, the playbook of success has been quite defined and quite solid for a long period of time up until the last few years where suddenly customers don't behave the way they used to anymore. The data doesn't predict the future in the way that it used to. You know, I was, I was working in a luxury retailer as COVID hit. And a huge part of the luxury industry here in the UK and probably around the world is driven by the Chinese consumer. Of course, Chinese consumer was no longer traveling and Harrods in the UK, which wasn't what I was working for, but Harrods footfall dropped by 98% in their beautiful store in Knightsbridge. And within three months, Harrods had opened an outlet store, which they'd never done before. And they started to open beauty halls in second tier 
British cities, which Harrods would never, never do. And they went from not knowing COVID was a thing to being able to do that in a matter of weeks. What I find then interesting is how so many businesses have struggled to hold on to that kind of pace and agility of change since COVID has started now to die away. And they've gone back to the kind of pace that they were operating at before. I've, although most of the ones I've worked with haven't quite reverted, they're still, um, they've gotten, they've gotten, some have gotten the taste of innovation and are continuing. And others are really, you know, trying to figure out, do we go back to the old ways? You know, what, what do we do and how do we know and what should we be paying attention to? And some of a real-time leadership is helping people kind of sort out what should they be paying attention to as they're needing to pivot themselves in the business. So tell me about this new model of leadership that you've developed with David. Sure. The, the background quote, I think, that it informs the book is a quote by Viktor Frankl. I think most people know that he was a concentration camp survivor for three years and came out a better person. And he also then observed all the other people in the camp, those who survived like him, those who were crushed, those who colluded, and started thinking about what was the difference. And he then wrote Man's Search for Meaning. But one quote of his that's quite remarkable is when he says, between every stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies your freedom. And that is the real-time leadership space. So how, on one hand, can you access space under fire? Like if you have a tornado of fire and sharks, how do you find the eye of the tornado and create space? And how do you then have a sense of, well, now I've created that space, what do I do with it in terms of accessing peak performance? And that's where our framework comes in, which is actually a framework of frameworks. But the way what it started was David Noble and I were in front of a whiteboard in 2017. And uh, under much lower stakes than Viktor Frankl, we were thinking about what's the difference between the leaders that we're seeing who are really thriving and what are we doing that's helping them? And we went to the whiteboard and thought first, well, what frameworks are we using? And we went through and we had about, we came up with over a hundred frameworks and tools that we had collected and were using. We threw out some, we kept some, and then we organized them into this larger framework called MOVE. And I'll tell you what the M-O-V-E stand for, and then you can guide me on where you want to go. M is to be mindfully alert, mindful in terms of noticing and not prejudging, and alert like an athlete, able to really sort of dance and change and know what's going on around you, inside of you, and with others. O is to be an options generator, and that's the article HBR published in their magazine last month called The Power of Options. And for those of us who know the GROW, G-R-O-W model of coaching, this is O on steroids. And it really shows about four different templates you can use to create options. V is to validate your vantage point. Very often, um, business failures are due to overconfidence and people not validating their vantage point. But the other failures are often because you didn't believe your own vantage point. And what we do is we think about what is an ideal vantage point, what can get in the way. So mindfully alert, options generator, validate your vantage point. And E is to engage and affect change. 
to know what you need to do, what signals you need to do, what strength of those signals in order to get yourself or an organization moving. So that is the model in a nutshell. I think it's really interesting. And the one that I'm personally always fascinated by is the first one, which is being mindfully alert. Why? Because in many, many industries, more changes than have ever been the case before. Being aware of the things that you've never seen before that are unexpected. My observation of leaders is often that's the most difficult bit. Because if they're clear on that, they're quite practiced at forming options. They're quite practiced at validating their assumptions. They're quite practiced at putting in place change. They can improve and develop those. But I often say to people, there's a question before the question you're asking, which is the question that you might need to focus on, which is sort of the 10,000 foot view. And I think that you're saying is that coming into the elevate your alertness to what's going on and listening without judgment and all those kinds of things. What have you observed in leaders that you've worked with or leaders that you've seen through this extraordinary period of change where they've done that really well? What are examples where people have done that really well, do you think? Well, I feel the the chair owner of um, the the retail company I described earlier was a great example because he was always surveying what was going on ahead of him, behind him, and staying very alert. And we talk about being alert to the three dimensions of leadership. And the first one is, what do I need to do? What do I need to accomplish? And being very alert to the changes, because what was important for you yesterday and even today is not for the future. And I love, I wrote it down in my notes, what you said about the data doesn't predict anymore. So you have to listen to the data and then know when to be alert to things are changing. And so that's one aspect, alert to what you need to do, but that's often not obvious. For example, you can go into um, a meeting and you think you have to make a capital expenditure, a decision, et cetera. And so that's, you know, that's, that's what we're doing this meeting. Or in the case for those of us who are parents, um, let's say you walk into the, to the dining room and, and your child um, has a sprawling mess on the table and says, hey, I'm done with my homework and I go watch TV. And you're like, I don't think so. Well, what is your automatic default is get the homework done, uh, make that decision. Or do you step back and go, well, what really needs to happen? What do I really need to do? And it could be instead of making that decision, it's having everyone in the team have a voice and aligning them. Or instead of getting your kid to just get the homework done, is to develop maybe a love of learning or discipline. So just a second to say, what is it do I really need to do? But then there's the second question. Second dimension is your own inner development. What kind of character strengths you want to be living? What is your purpose? Um, the, the whole idea of who do I want to be right now, which is another one. So you walk in the meeting before, what do I really want to accomplish? But now you add another question, which is who do I want to be right now in this meeting? Let's say everybody has screwed up and you're mad. Do you want to be the person that just blows their stack? Do you want to be the person who can walk in and actually be curious and kind? Who do you want to be? I had one leader who was CEO of a major platform company, and I had challenged her about this question and to ask it of herself every meeting. And the first time she tried it, she then came back and said, um, 
It was very powerful. She said, I was about to go in my last meeting. This is in COVID and, you know, 16 Zooms into the day. And she wants to be anywhere but on that screen and is very cranky and tired and said, who do I want to be right now, right before the meeting? And she then suddenly had the thought, the least important meeting of my day is the most important meeting of theirs. So who do I want to be? And when she showed up, it was a very different her. And what she emanated was very different. And the third dimension of leadership is the interpersonal, you know, and we typically go with the golden rule, you know, treat others, lead others as you would want to be treated and led. And that works fine for some percentage of the population that just happens to be like you. But otherwise, you need the platinum rule is treat others, lead others as they would want to be led and not you. And those are the three dimensions of leadership. And ideally, we want to be three-dimensional leaders. We know the one-dimensional ones who can push everything through and kill their people. We know others who are very loving and servant leaders, but have a harder time getting the numbers and pushing people forward. We really want to be three-dimensional leaders when we can, and then stay alert to changes on the outside. What are new things being called from you that you need to develop in yourself? And are there different ways you need to be relating to people? Everyone talks about the millennials are different. You know, how can you be aware of that? It's so interesting. Do you come across leaders who believe themselves to be brilliant at surveying the horizon, but because of biases or blinkers, they're not actually surveying as widely as they need to be? If you ask them how good they are doing it, they think, yeah, I'm really good. Yeah. It's like so often when you give someone feedback and they go, but that's not true. You're like, oh man, it is so true. Yes. And, um, I think what I see, I'm thinking of one leader in particular, and it's truly amazing because he has mesmerized people and he has mesmerized his board, and he keeps seeing things that aren't correct, lost 50% of his market share, and people are still in the company, many of them are still sort of following him. Others have learned just to live with it. And one of them said, it's just internal resignation. I just don't even try anymore. And I think the big culprit is ego. Um, basically, the lack of interest in asking yourself, where could I be wrong? Or I think I should talk to someone who doesn't agree with my point of view and see what I can learn. And those are the leaders, I think, who do stay mindfully alert and the others become um, you know, it's just rigid and encrusted. But I think most of the time, it's ego that is the enemy. It's really interesting. Tell me more about your view on coaching. Who do you personally love to coach? Ah, Marshall and I laugh about this because um, he only likes to coach people who he thinks are great and are going to make it. I like to coach people who are skeptical of coaching, don't particularly give a darn. And, um, and are often uh, people who are scary to their people. Now, I'd say maybe 40% of my cases are like that. And, and 50 or 60 are kind of not your terrifying people. So I like both. But I think when I'm, when I'm working with someone, particularly for those of us here who are working with people who are on the scary side, is how do you get yourself to know them well enough, quickly enough that you can like them? 
And if you like them, then, you know, I talked about earlier about who do you want to be and how do you want to relate? If you can find what is good and special about that person and form a bond, then you create psychological safety by that. And they tend to open up and will allow you in. Now, a lot of my coaching, um, particularly what you'll see in the book is one is we don't make a case for coaching at all. So the book is actually very good to give people who are very skeptical, if not uninterested in coaching. And we begin with sort of a riveting story and there's sort of riveting stories throughout. And then a lot of, a lot of material, some of it, as Marshall said, is dense in a good way. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's probably the, the heart of what I have to say about that. You remind me of something that a colleague of yours, Dr. Mark Goulston, who came on the Unlock Moment some time ago, said, um, if I can't root for you, then I won't coach you. And that's the thing, similar to you saying you need to find something in them that you like about them. Do you find people that you work with and you fail to find that? I would say only two or three times. Uh, no, four times. Um, and I remember one person, very famous CEO, and I talked to him through a couple of hours and I just couldn't do it. I could not connect with him. And in that case, it was really hard because he's a really well-known person and it was a ton of money. And I thought, it's just not fair. I just don't care about him. And I then went to the person who referred him to me and said, I don't think I can do this, but frankly, I think you could do it and you were just afraid to. And so you brought me in. That turned out not to be entirely true. What happened was about 10 months later, he was the fate of a lot of these CEOs who their faces on the front of Forbes or Fortune. And then a year later, they're crashed out of power and bad behavior shows up. And it turned out he was doing a lot of bad behavior. And I had no content for that. I just knew I was trying to bond. On the other hand, I was with one guy once and he was told um, by Egon Zender, the search and advisory firm, that he could not be the CEO of the company until he had coaching with me for a full year. And the board was, we're not going to do it. So he procrastinated for six months. I mean, I can understand that. And then finally, here's our first coaching session. Hello. Okay. Hello. And then he puts up his hand to look at his watch and goes, how long is this going to take? Only he said it like, how long is this going to take? And oddly enough, it was not hard to find a way to like him. First of all, I think as coaches, we are trained to quickly take the point of view of other people. And that really is a superpower. And I, instead of taking it personally, thought, you know, if I was him, I wouldn't want to have to talk to some woman that my board tells me I have to speak to when I bought in the numbers. I know more than anybody else. I'm a great business person. Why should I have to talk to this person? So I said something like, um, it's up to you, actually, like how much time is this going to take? I go, it's up to you. I believe that the coach needs to fit into the structure of the client, not the other way around. So um, what's going on? He then like machine gunned out for 15 minutes, everything that was going on because nobody ever asked him. And then finally, he described his situation. <laughs> I said, well, how did that turn out? And he goes, well, my most valued person quit. To which I said, would you like that to not happen again? And that was it. It was the beginning of a very lovely two-year relationship. 
So if you can cross the bridge over to where the other person is, that's part of vantage point. It's part of platinum rule. Cross over to the bridge to their world, see it as they do. And then chances are you're going to find a way to like and connect with them. I love that question. I was imagining you were going to say, what do you think went wrong? And of course, to say, how would you like that not to happen again? That was interesting. In the book, you talk about two-on-one coaching method. What's two-on-one coaching? Oh, well, very interesting is it started with this guy, um, who we call Marcus in the book. David Noble and I um, are basically siblings. And when there is an extremely high stakes situation where the company is in facing a lot of complexity and certainty and is worth a lot of money, and the leader is very complex and could go either way, we are often then called in together. And if you think of it, um, David was the managing partner of uh, two different strategy firms, uh, a banker and founded the world's first internet, a digital bank. And so he comes in from one angle and then I come in from another angle. And then if we were Venn diagrams with two circles, there's, a, there's an overlap. And as a result, we will both say different things. So with Marcus, I was working on helping him understand psychological safety, capacity to listen, et cetera, et cetera. And then David walked by outside the glass window. And I'm like, oh, oh, you gotta meet, you gotta meet David. So I bring David in to see Marcus. He sits down, we start talking. And he's saying things like, so you're wanting to um, centralize operations here. And how's that going? Not well is the answer. And so on my side, it's not going well because he's not listening, et cetera, et cetera. But on David's side, there's some structural things and some clear strategy things that have gone awry that he hasn't been thinking about. So together, we kind of bring a full perspective in. And when he was the managing partner of a strategy firm, he said, when, when we'd go in to do a strategy consultation, it would be me and 40 partners. We'd all be in there. And why shouldn't a major leader in this kind of situation have more than one person there to coach and advise? That's really interesting. And I think you can see the dynamic with the three in the room being quite different. And also the observation ability of one person to observe the other two in conversation is really powerful. Obviously, in coaching training, you see that a lot. There's an observer and they're reflecting. If you were talking to a leader who's never experienced coaching or they've never experienced good coaching, coaching they perceive to be good, and you're saying to them how to get started, what would you say to someone who hasn't really experienced good coaching in the past? Um. I basically, I basically say one thing, not only do I say this, but I get asked this a lot um, from coaches, from consultants, et cetera. And they're saying, this guy just doesn't want coaching. I said, so number one, don't call it coaching. Number two, why didn't you say, just have one conversation with this person and see if it feels like you want another one. Like, that's it. I don't make the case for coaching. I don't go on and on. I don't say, why don't they like it? I'm like, you know, let's, let's just lead the horse to water and see if he or she wants to drink. And we'll just have a conversation, just like the guy that I described, you know, how long is this going to take? Um, that's often what I do is just experience a half hour or an hour of this kind of conversation. And I tend to like skeptics. Um, I was giving a workshop once and some guy stood up and says, well, you know, I don't believe in coaching. And I think this and I think that and I think that. And everybody's expecting me to go on the defensive. I said, you know, sometimes I think those things too. 
you know, so I like, don't worry about it. See if the ideas land with you, see if it's useful. But I think trying to get defensive or feel like it's your job to convince them of the merits of coaching, ironically, you're less likely to succeed. Now, that's different from having the capacity to describe coaching, you know, and the difference between coaching and mentoring and therapy. And, um, and in my case, a combination. So I'd say I, it's different, but, but sometimes it's like 80% of what we would call coaching and then 20% of, of the offering. But I'm, I'm not ever actually directive. Um, I will offer ideas or say, I think this is going on, or this is something important you're not looking at, but then I'll follow that up with a quick question to say, does that seem right to you? Am I on track? Um, or, do you, or what do you want to talk about? I think that really resonates. Sometimes I say to people, when it's good coaching, you're going to know, not that you've got all the answers, not you sold all your issues, but you will know that it's helpful very quickly, you know. You should know in the first conversation, first couple of conversations, if you're sitting there at the end of the conversation too, going, I don't really know what this is all for, then it's not doing anything for you. And I remember somebody came to me relatively recently and said, I've had coaching before, I've had 12 sessions, I didn't really get anything out of it. And I thought, how did either you or the coach get to the end of the 12th session and without a sense of progress and not already have had that conversation? But I do think that, you know, my sense from conversations with people is that coaching is becoming much more accepted and understood when it's good, when it's effective, when the partnership is really effective. So I'm very excited about seeing how it's all progressing in the US and in the UK, you know, very significantly in recent years. And I think it's a really powerful partnership for senior leaders to have someone in their corner in that kind of way. When people read your book, if there's one thing that you think you'd like to take away and think differently or know differently or do differently, what's something you'd like people reading your book to have? I'd hope you'd like, um, you could take away that there's a lot of small things that you can do that can have an outsized impact. And while the book and the material in the book, there is a lot of it, I don't think you need to retain it all. What you need to do is find the pieces that speak to you. These small pivotal moments, you go into a room and you can say, what should I get done here really? Who do I want to be right now? How should I be relating to people? Or you can say, here's some different options I have. Do I want to lean in and engage? Do I want to lean back and think about the data? Lean with and care about people? Or do I have the capacity to not lean at all and not get triggered? These are some of the small things that you can find in, in the book that are ways. So I really would like people to know there are things they can do that will make a significant difference in their capacity to create space for themselves and have the capacity to choose how they react. Fantastic. Thank you. And where can people find out more about you if they want to learn more about the work you do? Probably the easiest thing to do is just remember how to spell my name. Um, Carol Kaufman, two F's, one N, and put me in your favorite search engine and about 10 pages of various things will pop up. One of them being my website and a way to contact me and Google real-time leadership. And that will take you to the real-time leadership institute website and 
you can find things there, including our assessment. Fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For world-leading coach Dr. Carol Kaufman, it was the inner voice saying, don't hold back, that led to her pursuing a life in coaching and spreading a powerful message that reaches so many people around the world with her ideas and her clarity. I'm so delighted that she's been able to share such wonderful thinking with us today. And if you enjoyed our conversation, please do go and order a copy of her new book, Real-Time Leadership. Find your winning moves when the stakes are high at Amazon and your favorite bookshop. Carol, it's been such a great privilege. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. It was great. Thank you. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.